Hello everyone and welcome to episode 97 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lincook and I'll be your host this week as always. And today we're kind of finishing off this little segment we have going on for February 2023, Black History Month in the US, thinking about some of the African Americans um, and people that primarily fought for black liberation in the US, um, looking at their work in Britain, any time spent in Britain, their arrival, their travel to Britain in the case of the escaped enslaved people like William and Ennen Craft and Henry Box Brown. Um, and then we kind of fast forwarded uh, with Tion Paris uh, in last week's episode and looked a little bit at black radical women um, that were doing the work in the um, 20th century. Um, and this week we are in, well, post-war Britain. Um, And we're looking at Martin Luther King. Now, I'll be honest with you, it feels really weird doing an episode about Martin Luther King because the whole reason I made this podcast, well, not the whole reason, of course, not the whole reason, but one of the main reasons was because whenever we talk about black history, people pull out, you know, the Martin Luther Kings, the Rosa Parks, and I just was fed up of it. And here I am on the same podcast that was meant to, you know, cut back, um, push back against that narrative um, of celebrating African-American civil rights leaders when it comes to black history in Britain. And I'm doing the same thing. However, this is going to be a really interesting part of the story. It's a bit where he comes to Britain um, and inspires a lot of black liberation movements here. That's kind of the punchline of the episode, basically. Spoiler alert. Um, however, I'm going to be speaking about two of his visits in particular in 1961 and 1964, uh, where he comes to Britain, preaches um, sermons to a variety of congregations, holds talks, meetings um, and gatherings of important people that inspired um, the kind of next generation, the next wave of movements within the UK. Martin Luther King is most known as a civil rights leader. Born in January 1929 in Atlanta, Georgia, the son of a Baptist minister. He was an accomplished philosopher and thinker and he held a doctorate in theology by the time he was 26 years old. In 1954, he becomes a pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And this was the same year that the landmark desegregation case, Brown versus the Board of Education, uh, went through. This altered the social and political landscape of the US educational system as the Supreme Court ruled that separating children in public schools on the basis of race was unconstitutional and it overruled this idea of separate but equal, um, which is a principle that was kind of put forward in the 1896 Plessy v Ferguson case. Now, our engagement with um, Dr King often begins and ends with his I Have a Dream speech. We don't really go beyond that, I'd say. And it's quite interesting because he's wheeled out all the time when we think about black history, even in Britain. Yet we don't really go beyond I Have a Dream that one day X, Y, Z, you know. Um, And so I think it's quite interesting actually to to think about him in a different element, to think about his work in the UK um, and to think about the other ways in which we can view him and his legacy. Um, I don't think actually the average person, even though he is brought out so often, knows actually that much about Martin Luther King. Maybe I'm wrong um, and you can prove me wrong if I am and if you know everything I say this episode, but I was learning um, as I did this research, so I think you might too. In an article on Al Jazeera News by Jen M. Jackson, it said we should be suspicious of the watered down colorblind notions of king's politics that often that too often dominate mainstream narratives end quote 
Um, and I think it's important because this whole article, it goes on to talk about the fact that America has created events and days like Martin Luther King Day of Service and they continue to commodify and appropriate um, Dr King's legacy for these kind of performative acts, which we saw especially during BLM in the US in 2020, where Martin Luther King quotes were being used to condemn protest movements um, and that kind of thing. Dr. King was an anti-capitalist. He spoke up for poor communities, for economic justice, as well as racial justice. But he spoke out, and most importantly, for urgent justice. He said, and I quote, justice delayed is justice denied. He had a radical message um, in the time for a clergyman, um, but I think it's been so sanitised in public narratives, especially in Britain, as we see the civil rights in the US as completely unconnected to racial justice movements in the UK. The fact is these movements are transnational and the histories that kind of share this struggle should acknowledge how closely they are linked together. And when you hear some of the people that would have been working with Martin Luther King in the time he was alive and, you know, his life was quite short, unfortunately, um, you'll probably be surprised. I know I was. But it's said between 1965 and 1968, we saw a more quote-unquote radical Dr King and whilst we won't be looking at that period of his life today the kind of precursor to that is the early 1960s um, and his visits to the UK. Now a lot of the uh, research actually for today's episode comes from um, work done by Dr Hannah Elias um, in a chapter called John Collins Martin Luther King Jr and Transnational Networks of Protest and Resistance in the Church of England during the 1960s, which is in a book called The Church of England and British Politics Since 1900. I really like the chapter because it really stressed the importance of um, taking a transnational approach to um, Dr Martin Luther King and understanding him in a global context. Um, and she cites Louis Baldwin and Paul Decker, who stress this importance um, and say, you know, the transnational understanding of this work um, is very clear. Um, Dr King was very much engaged in race relations and racial justice movements literally all over the world and he said and I quote we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied to a single garment of destiny what affects one directly affects all indirectly as long as there is poverty in this world no one can be totally healthy Um, and he has many kind of I'd say his practice and his actual actions spoke to this quote um, very well, but he says this a lot, you know, he says things of this nature a lot. Um, We're all tied, our humanity is one and we should be working towards kind of better treatment of all within humanity. Um, Whilst we know him for his racial justice uh, movement and his activism in that regard, that wasn't the only thing he was fighting for in his lifetime. And now, When he comes to Britain, he comes to Britain, well, he comes to Britain multiple times, but I'll be talking about a visit in 1961, 1964. Um, He preaches a sermon both times called The Three Dimensions of a Complete Life, in which he uses this image of the New Jerusalem from the Book of Revelations to call people to a life of equal length, breadth and height. And he kind of sets out a way in which um, people should be living um, to live a just life, um, an equal life and, and to put kind of equality at the fore of their of their life and their work. But not just that, you know, to actually work on what they're called to do by God. Um, and he gives this sermon, as I said, in 1961. Um, but it's also the sermon um, that he preached at his trial address um, at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery in 1954. 
Um, and actually, he gave a version of it every year until he was assassinated in 1968. Um, so this speech is quite important. Um, and I'm going to get into kind of the intricacies of it a little bit later and what he actually meant by the three dimensions of um, life. Um, but I just thought it was important to kind of share the fact that he was building on scholarly work that he'd done, on theological work that he'd done, um, and continuing to add to it in regard to his message. Civil rights leaders of the time were very clear that international support for the civil rights movement in the US was very important, and they were very intentional about that. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, they regularly sought out international support for their cause and saw it as part of a wider struggle for justice, which is why it's really important, and I'm going to keep stressing this, to take a transnational view of the civil rights movement and other movements for racial equality to fully understand the reach, the impact and the scope of what was being undertaken by means of black liberation. Um, as we know, Malcolm X's visit to the UK came nine days before his assassination. He went to Smithwick in Birmingham, which I spoke about in an episode I did in February 2021. I believe it was episode number 20, Malcolm X's visit to Birmingham. And so, you know, we can clearly see there's a pattern here of um, civil rights leaders coming to the UK and travelling around the world um, to grow support for the cause of racial justice. Dr King visited the UK numerous times from 1954 up till the year of his death, which was 1968, and his visits were quite frequent. Um, through King's connection to John Collins... John Collins uh, was a canonary at St. Paul's Cathedral and a supporter of the US civil rights movements, as well as other movements for justice, such as ending South African apartheid and other African anti-colonial organisations and work. Um, he has had a connection to John Collins through um, a man called Bayard Rustin, who was an African-American civil rights leader, um, speaking up for civil rights, socialism, non-violence and gay rights. They kind of had a connection and through that, King was invited to the UK by John Collins um, to a gathering of Christian action. And then it was also John Collins who organised the visit in 1964 when he preached at St Paul's Cathedral. Whilst King visited the UK, he built relationships with activists, scholars and writers. These included CLR James, whom he discussed the Black Jacobins with. He appeared on stage with the Jamaican cultural theorist and sociologist Stuart Hall and Robert Rescher, a South African political dissident, at Methodist Central Hall in 1961. Interestingly, at that meeting, Stuart Hall called Dr King one of the, and I quote, voices of the future. And wasn't he just kind of spot on there, really? Um, he also thanked Christian Action and John Collins, um, Christian Action being an organisation uh, for action within um, the church. And John Collins, of course, for bringing everyone together and facilitating this conversation of black activists from three countries for a, and I quote, meaning, evening of meaningful dialogue. Um, these meetings are very important. Not only was it bringing together the race relations and the important issues surrounding race in the UK with the civil rights in the US, but also issues of South Africa um, and Robert Rescher being the spokesperson for that. And so these three issues are kind of core to both of um, Dr King's visits in 1961 and 1964. Apartheid was a conversation that was obviously very topical at the time um, and people were quite concerned about what was happening in South Africa. When Dr King visited London in 1961, 
He preached for the first time at Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church. Um, Being a Baptist minister, it was only right. And as I mentioned, he delivered the three dimensions of a complete life um, sermon, which he had already used um, in the US. Uh, This was one of the first times he was preaching it in the UK. Um, The three dimensions of the complete life centres on this idea of, number one, living your life well for the length of your days, harnessing your talents and skills. Number two, needing a breadth of life with um, concern for your fellow human beings. This is where he kind of brings anti-racist struggle and movements for justice and equality into his word. And the third, he says that it's not enough to have these two things alone. You also, in equal dimensions, need to have a relationship with God. And he talked about how his relationship with God drives his work and his activism. Often edited out of the narrative of Dr. King, he was a reverend. Um, He was a clergyman. First and foremost, he had a PhD in theology. Um, And that practice and devotion to God came first and foremost. And um, in many ways was the reason for his activism and his politics and the work that he did. This sermon, as I've said, was one King reused over many years. It was the first sermon his wife heard him give. Coretta Scott King commented in her biography that, and I quote, it had a special meaning for me because it was the first sermon I had ever heard him preach on a Sunday long ago in a little church in Roxbury, Massachusetts. Now, unfortunately, there's no direct record of him preaching at Bloomsbury that is known to have survived. However, those that were there remember the sermon quite well. This invitation to preacher had been issued by Howard Williams only three weeks earlier and um, Dr King was travelling to London that weekend to fulfil a variety of other engagements, as I mentioned the one with John Collins um, and Christian Action. Um, His schedule was packed, but ultimately he came to preach and preaches what he did. But it is important to talk about the talk that he did um, with Christian Action, um, which is important because... Well, it's not important for this reason, but it's important because, as we said, it brought together um, activists from three countries for this meaningful dialogue, this conversation that hadn't yet happened. Um, However, the meeting was interrupted by protests by British neo-fascists, and they were shouting, keep Britain white, go back to your own country. Um, And the response to this by one of King's advisers was actually quite alarming, and he thought the heckling was concerning because there might be violent acts meted out towards Dr King afterwards. Um, And he, you know, speaks out about that and says, you know, I I really didn't expect this level of violence to come out of of these kind of people with British accents, and that was always seen as quite proper. Um, But it's interesting that even coming from the violence that black people faced in the US, he's shocked at what's happening in the UK to Dr King in response to a speech that, you know, he's been invited to give. Um, Afterwards, he attends a reception sponsored by the Afro-Asia West Indian community at Africa Unity House. And then he leaves London for New York the following day, a jam-packed schedule. Um, It seems every time he comes to the UK, he is just speaking and speaking and speaking and listening and talking and conversing and meeting people. And then he's gone on to the next thing. Um, And that seemed to be his life. You know, his purpose was to, to preach and to get a word out. And that's exactly what he did. Dr. King's visit in 1964 is um, a little bit more well known about. um, And when you think of his visit, it might be the first one that comes to mind. That's because he'd been recently awarded the Nobel Peace Prize um, and had garnered more public attention and media attention. Um, So this means that the sermon he preached in 1964 at St. Paul's Cathedral, 
being very similar uh, to the one in 1961 at Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church, does have a recording of it um, and does have a little bit more scholarship on it. Um, but it's interesting, he is kind of given a lot more to do and a lot more meetings are planned around this visit and the media attention is a little bit more notable than his visit in 1961. So he comes in 1964 on his way um, to be awarded with the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, he is coming back with uh, Bayard Rustin again um, as a guest of Christian Action and the trip is supported and sponsored by IDAF um, and this fund was kind of devoted to supporting anti-apartheid activism in South Africa. Um, this visit was again an important point of intersection between the global anti-apartheid movements, the American civil rights movement and also ecumenical networks of Christian radicalism and progressivism that were working towards racial justice and wider equality um, within church networks. In John Collins's invitation um, to Dr King, he saw the visit as an opportunity to help further the anti-apartheid cause in his letter of invitation, he asked King if he would raise awareness of a recording of Nelson Mandela's I Am Prepared to Die speech given from the dock at the Rivonia trial in April 1964 and show his public support for the Defence and Aid Fund. Of course, he was still pushing the agenda of civil rights in the US, but also thinking about the increased migrations from people from the Caribbean, um, from Asia and from Africa, and looking at race relations in Britain. Um, he actually went on to meet the Labour Prime Minister Harold Wilson at the time um, and representatives of the government during that visit. The Indian Prime Minister Lal Badur Sarasti also flew in to Britain to meet with Dr King for breakfast and there they discussed civil rights and non-violence in regards to their own philosophies um, and it's in um, Dr Lice's uh, article in her chapter sorry, that she notes that London is a really important and clear site for these meetings that span across the different social and political um, issues across the globe and it's London that these conversations are happening in um, I think highlighting the importance of the city um, and some of the should we say not necessarily groundbreaking but some of the work and the conversations and dialogue more importantly that were occurring um, in this period in the 1960s um, on Sunday, the 6th of December, during the evening song service, Dr. King preached at St. Paul's Cathedral. And the symbolism of the location and his anti-racist message is quite stark, I'd say. During the Second World War, St. Paul's was called the Parish Church of Empire. Imagine that on the BBC. That's what it was known as. Um, and it's significant and an interesting choice of location, given this history it really does juxtapose the royal weddings of St Paul's, grand and imposing, and a seemingly unlikely stopping point for a man of establishment-shaking politics and clearly very radical views on inequality, racial and otherwise. Um, the sermon, which I've mentioned earlier, highlights the way that organised religion and faith communities in Britain contributed to anti-racist and anti-colonial movements uh, that challenged xenophobia and white supremacy. Also, um, Dr. King talks about the fact that the politics of race can't be separated from the politics of faith and that church structures, networks and institutions could be used in the fight for racial equality uh, by activists within this struggle. Um, there's a clear link here with some of the African-American abolitionists that arrived in Britain uh, and the rhetoric they were using in regards to religion um, and equality 
and the kind of using the church as a space to preach and teach about abolition then compare comparing that to dr king and his message you know hundreds of years on um it's still the case that a similar message is being preached and the rhetoric is still very much the same um the service at saint paul's cathedral was you know incredible in the sense that it was i think the first time a black nonconformist baptist preacher preaching in the cathedral um there were around 4000 people there people were even pe- placed in the aisles because it was so full um and that's how many people came to hear dr king speak in britain um in st paul's cathedral and at this point i think it's appropriate to pull out um an extract a little quote from um his sermon that he gave um and he says We must not seek to rise from a position of disadvantage to one of advantage, substituting injustice of one type for that of another. God is not interested in the freedom of white, black or yellow men, but in the freedom of the whole human race. Um, Clearly showing that equality was his mission. We we do equate him to racial justice and for the um, equality of black people in the US. And that's very important and not to be disregarded. But here in the UK, and obviously, as I've mentioned, this sermon was used um, prior to this speech um, in 64 and after. Um, it was very clear that he was interested in equality uh, for all and why he was so easily able to speak on other movements and other moments, whether it be anti-apartheid struggles in South Africa or race relations in Britain. After the sermon, there was a press conference and Dr King emphasised the extent of the racial problems in Britain. He said, and this is a transcript taken from the press conference in St Paul's Cathedral's collections, um, and I quote, I think it's a fact now, and everybody knows it, that there are growing racial problems in Britain as a result of the large number of coloured persons from the West Indies, from Pakistan and India, who are coming into the country. And it is my feeling that if Britain is not eternally vigilant, and if England does not, in a real sense, go all out to deal with this problem now, it can mushroom and become as serious as the problem we face in some other nations." Um, end quote and I may be maybe right in thinking he was talking about the US and maybe South Africa um, in that kind of breadth um, he's talking obviously about post-war migration the 60s was clearly a time for a lot of protests um, as things like sus laws the inequalities in healthcare, education housing and employment all came to the fore um, and people really began to speak up about um, what was happening also the commonwealth um, immigration act that was passed through in 62 was something Dr. King spoke about. Um, but general, there, generally, there was a feeling, as you know, from listening to this podcast um, and from your own knowledge, you know, there was a very strong anti-immigrant racist feeling in Britain. Um, there were the far right, um, there were neo-fascists, um, all of whom active, all of whom had a lot to say about the newly arrived peoples in the country. Um, and so... Dr. King gives this warning, you know, if you're not vigilant, if you don't deal with this problem now, it's going to mushroom. And here we are, 2023. Has it mushroomed? I'll leave that to you to decide. In the press conference, he goes on to speak about the unjust nature of the immigration acts that would remove the recognition of people in the Commonwealth as British citizens. He spoke throughout his time in London about the boycott of South African goods race relations and justice and he was greeted with a lot of support 
um, considering he was deeply unpopular in the US at this exact same time period. But there were also people who tried to disrupt his meetings, such as a group of neo-fascists who set off a thunder flash in the corridor outside the room in which the meeting was happening. One of the most significant and important meetings of this time um, in London that year which was a catalyst for one of Britain's own groups fighting for racial equality, was a meeting called for by Dr King and Bayard Rustin, who asked John Collins and Marion Glean, a West Indian social worker and writer, to organise a gathering of immigrant leaders to meet him after his talk. The meeting took place with 40 organisers who talked for 45 minutes about race relations in Britain. And this is a meeting that's said to be the catalyst for the formation of CARD, Campaign Against Racial Discrimination. The group was founded in 1964. After this meeting, chaired by Dr David Pitt and later Baron Pitt of Hampstead, a doctor who had moved to Britain from Grenada. Um, And in its early years, it was extremely effective at lobbying Westminster um, and pushing through things like the Race Relations Act and just generally being a voice in the political conversation about racial equality and justice. Although the group didn't last for an extended period of time, they were very successful and effective at lobbying Westminster and in the work that they did. Um, And it kind of summarises, I would say, the the major impact that Dr King had on the UK in the um, early 60s. But I wanted to leave with a kind of note from Canon Collins' wife, Diana Collins. Um, And she'd watched King that day, interact with her husband, interact with the press, interact with churchgoers um, during his sermon and his press conference and meetings. And she had words to say, and I thought I would leave you with them just to kind of highlight the nature of Dr. King's character on this trip um, in life and, and the work that he did. She said, and I quote, He gives the impression of a deeply solitary person, a man who has wrestled with God. He came to London from a sickbed and was clearly exhausted. But the feeling of his inner strength remains with one. He moves through the crowds, through both execration and exclamation. His eyes fixed on a distant goal. And that is all we have time for on the topic of Martin Luther King in Britain. And that is the end of our series of uh, US slash black british history and historical moments i think some of you will be relieved to know um, i always get mixed reviews about this um little segment of february um i can hear a lot of you crying out for black britain again um so we'll be back we'll be back on british shores uh, as of next week so i hope you enjoyed this episode and this series uh, and have a wonderful week thank you for listening goodbye the history hotline a direct line to a better understanding of black british history The History Hotline is edited and hosted by Deanna Lynn Cook and research is done by Zakia Riaz. To continue to support this podcast, please follow us on social media at The History Hotline on Instagram and at The History HL on Twitter. This podcast is available on all good podcast platforms. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.